Hello everybody. After the rather intensive Battlestar Galactica comics episode, I felt like doing something a bit more fun for a week. You know, a little light-hearted like the, the Fall Guy episode I did, or, or along those lines. Something that wouldn't require a lot of work, was basically what I was looking for. And I was giving some thought to, to what this could be. When I was listening to an episode of the podcast Inglorious Trexperts, which casually mentioned that Leonard Nimoy had appeared on an episode of William Shatner's 1980s cop drama, T.J. Hooker. Well, that fit the bill nicely, thought I. Hmm. Yes, it perhaps didn't work out quite as well as I thought. Um, and it went well, you know, for those that aren't aware, T.J. Hooker started life as a TV movie entitled The Protectors, which itself was a a reworking of a a 1970s concept, The Rookies. The series would follow a group of young, studly new recruits to the Los Angeles police force, and the focus of the show was to be on these junior officers. But the casting of William Shatner in the lead role kind of changed the direction of the series. First up, the series title was changed first to Hooker, and then to TJ Hooker, after it was pointed out that people tuning into a show called Hooker may be expecting a completely different kind of show. And, obviously, instead of focusing on the rookies, the series would instead focus on Hooker himself, a cliched, tough-as-nails cop with no tolerance for the scum who dwell on the streets. No lily-livered liberal Hooker was a hard-nosed police officer with a zero-tolerance approach to crime. Nevertheless, Hooker was by the book due to the constant complaints the show made about how law officers had their hands tied by increasingly stringent laws that protected the criminal more than the victim. Of course, he has a broken marriage behind him due to him being married to the streets and he's as dedicated as they come. The TV show Sledgehammer was clearly a piss take of TJ Hooker. I mean, just listen to this introduction from the pilot episode, The Protectors. T.J. Hooker is the name. But you don't have to lose any sleep wondering what the T.J. stands for. As far as you're concerned, my first name is Sergeant. I don't know what your individual reasons are for joining the police commission's new recruitment program. But I have one reason for being here. There's a war going on out there on our streets. People are scared, and they have a right to be. The body count is high. Homicide, assault, forcible rape, burglary, armed robbery, all up. Street savvy hoods have no fear. Not of the courts, not of prison. When the bus does stick, we house them, give them color TV and their wives on weekends. If that makes sense to you, then you and I are about to have a problem because I'm your instructor here and I love to weed out airheads and marshmallows. I've got a job to do to test your mental and physical fiber. I'm gonna work your tails off to save your lives and maybe the lives of some of your fellow officers. This is no picnic, no summer camp. Target range, 
classroom self-defense will cover everything you had in pre-training and more. But the real world is on the street, and that's what this new program is all about. On-the-job training. You got the dedication, you got the guts, you'll make it. You don't, I don't want you. Attend! Hut! Hit the barracks and stow your gear and hit the track running at 0900. You got it? Yes, sir. I don't hear you. Yes, sir! Dismissed! In case you are losing sleep, Hooker's name was Thomas Jefferson. I just... You know, just in case you you couldn't get to sleep tonight for for wondering, oh no, what was TJ Hooker's first name? Um, listening back to that, there's a fine line between hard boiled and cliched, and Hooker clearly falls on the cliched side. I mean, Shatner's doing his best, but it's no risk is our business, gentlemen speech is it the recruits were dropped from the series with richard lawson brian patrick clark and kelly Harmon all disappearing in between episodes and only adrian zmed as vince romano was kept around for the series the newly reformatted show meant the focus was more on hooker's old school machismo and romano's naivete um i never bought zmed at all as a cop He's far too much of a Hollywood pretty boy to be convincing. Um, He clearly lacks the edge of other just as handsome leading men like Dirk Benedict or Jan Michael Vincent or Tom Selleck. And maybe that's why he he was a perpetual second banana if you you go on IMDb and and scroll through his credits. The show was was created by Rick Husky, and it had a remarkably similar premise to his earlier producing gig, the aforementioned Rookies. It was a a Spelling Goldberg production, which pretty much tells you the kind of show it's going to be. Formulaic, predictable and cookie cutter. 45 minutes of pabulum in between commercials. The pilot, which I did watch for the purposes of this show, raises some interesting questions about the law versus justice, but the acting, the staging, the writing, everything really is all by the numbers. Even from the normally reliable Shatner, dialogue is preachy and sermonising rather than realistic or believable. However, we're not here to watch the pilot, so let's get to the meat of the show, should we? Shatner's Star Trek partner Leonard Nimoy appears in the second season episode Vengeance is Mine, written by Alison Hock and directed by Phil Bondelli. I assume, and of course we can't ask him now, but uh, I assume Nimoy was attracted to this appearance in exchange for a, a later directing gig that he did on the show. Um, erring in 1983, Nimoy's stint in Hooker's director's chair was only his fourth directing gig and predates his job directing Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. Shatner would also direct numerous T.J. Hooker segments before he too stepped behind the camera for a Star Trek movie, Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. It's a little known fact that Shatner was actually scheduled to direct the last episode of Star Trek's third season, and he would have thus beat Nimoy to the directorial chair, but NBC didn't order enough episodes, and in fact cancelled the show. So, The opening credits to the show are typical of the time. Cop cars peel out of the police station, William Shatner's stunt double leaps over buildings and cars blow up. 
Shatner looks pretty good at 50 years of age, still quite trim and athletic. Adrian Zemed can't quite pull off jumping over car bonnets as well as Shatner can, though, looking very much like a, a kid playing with daddy. The second season added Heather Locklear to the cast as Stacey Sheridan, and Richard Hurd was her father, Captain Dennis Sheridan, who was in the pilot movie, although Heather Locklear wasn't. Here's the theme, just to get your foot tapping. It's probably the best thing about the show. The episode opens with Hooker and Romano mid-bust, with Nimoy's character, Paul Maguire, aiding them for no adequately explained reason. Cue lots of car crashes and bloodless shootouts in which Shatner saves Nimoy's life because you're just a few days shy of retirement. <sighs> yes, yes, it, it's that kind of show. Hooker and Maguire apparently worked together 17 years earlier which would be 1966, if this episode heard in 1983, which was a moderately entertaining in-joke. Romano is informed that the bust they worked on is legendary in the department, but not so legendary that Romano knew that it was Hooker and Maguire who actually did it. So it's either not that much of a legend, or Romano didn't actually pay attention in class given that Romano really does like one of those people who coasts by purely on his looks and definitely not his brains, it's perfectly acceptable to believe that he wasn't paying attention. After this opening, which is essentially a cold open, the interstitial credits roll and the plot actually gets going. A beautiful aerobics instructor is attacked in a parking garage and raped. Hooker, Romano and Maguire investigate and, of course... Come on, you can all see this coming, right? It's Maguire's daughter, Val, who was just attacked because that trope never gets old. Hmm. Again, it's that kind of show. Hooker does at least refer Maguire's daughter to the rape crisis counsellor. But in every other respect, he's a pretty cold bastard and he's dealing with her. She'll get over it. She'll be okay. That kind of thing. Lovely bedside manner from Sergeant Hooker, though. In true Shatner fashion, he muscles in on every scene. 
immediately after the crisis counsellor has seen Maguire's daughter, Hooker can't let father and daughter have a private moment. No, Hooker has to bludgeon his way in and start questioning her. Fortunately, even though the rapist had a mask on, Val can identify her attacker, which she does. He's an attorney named Lawrence Foster who was in her class and asked her out on a date as the episode opened, but she turned him down. So, incels were a thing in 1983. Who knew? I did like that Val could recognise him. If you've ever seen a friend or a loved one in a mask, they can't hide who they are. So this was a nice nod to realism in a show whose relationship with realism is is um is tenuous at best. Hooker immediately goes after Foster and violates every rule in the book, arresting Foster in front of witnesses, convicting him before his trial, and telling him that he's going to jail. He doesn't even read him his Miranda rights. He's a fucking attorney, Hooker. By the book would have probably been the best way to go. But Hooker's not that kind of cop. You show me what a rapist looks like and I'll show you what a victim looks like. Especially when it's a cop's daughter. Foster seems quite perplexed that Val was a cop's daughter. I mean, I presume it didn't come up in the aerobics class. Foster is then put in a lineup for Val to pick him out, which she does, but she hesitates. As such, the lineup doesn't give them enough evidence for a prosecution. It's far too obvious that this guy did it, and he signposts it at every available opportunity. He even grins like a madman at Val as he leaves, as if during Hooker to do something about it. It's an incredibly unsubtle and campy performance in a story that does have a relatively serious subject matter. How about introducing some ambiguity to the story? How about introducing a number of suspects that it could have been? How about not being so goddamned obvious in your writing? But hey, it's not that kind of show. As if to demonstrate that the producers aren't quite sure how serious a subject matter this is, or indeed the tone of their own show, there are frequently silly humorous interludes about Hooker having trouble with his bank loans that tonally feel like horrendous gear shifts and don't actually work. The humorous subplot, I say humorous, could be excised without affecting the plot at all as its ties into the main storyline are non-existent. I mean, compare this to The Hand-Painted Tie, uh, an episode of The Greatest American Hero I watched very recently. In that show, a relatively serious episode about trigger words activating hypnotised sleeper agents, Bill Maxwell, a non-believer in the art of hypnotism, is hypnotised to fall asleep whenever someone says the word scenario. This B-plot is genuinely funny, well played by the cast, and an example of really effective comic relief in an overall sombre storyline. It also ties into the main plot, in that that's what Bill, Ralph and Pam are looking into. Um, trigger words activating um, old Vietnam vets. So it's well played on both levels. It ties into the, B, the A plot, it's funny, it's well done, and it's a, a really good example of really effective comic relief in an otherwise sombre storyline. It also demonstrates that as formulaic as Stephen J. Cannell's shows are, they have a higher calibre of writers working on them than Aaron Spelling's shows, where the B-plot 
humorous story in this just feels like every time it shows up, it just feels really tagged. Like, where's this come from? What's this got to do with anything? Um, It's at this point that Heather Locklear shows up. She looks gorgeous, which is fortunate, as she seems to have been employed just to look gorgeous. She contributes nothing to the show in any other capacity. And I do have to wonder why she wore a slightly different uniform to everyone else in that her collar is wide open. Still, it's Heather Locklear. And uh, it's nice to see her. Um, and it's very sad to hear of her problems in recent years. I, I hope she gets the help she needs to sort them out. It's always a shame when, when mental health issues seem to be affecting people like that, whoever they are. Uh, there's then some more guff about the law versus justice, a topic drilled into the ground in the pilot. And interestingly, Maguire refers to Hooker's daughter in this show. But in the pilot, Hooker had a son. But this kind of thing happened all the time in 80s TV shows. Uh, anyway, you can all see where this is going, right? Paul goes rogue vigilante on Foster's ass. Meanwhile, Hooker is actually doing some proper investigative police work instead of doing tuck and rolls and jumping over car bonnets. None of this prevents Foster from raping again. And because Foster is very, very, very dumb... He attacks people in broad daylight near a busy shopping centre. Hooker and Romano hear about this attack over the, the CB. Um, they are for Adam 30, I believe. You know, we're like Starskin Hutchwood, Zebra 3. Hooker and Romano's call sign is, is for Adam 30. And of course, they're driving in the wrong direction when they receive the call. Because this means that Hooker has to spin the car around to go in the opposite direction because that always looks good. Uh, upon arrival, Hooker leaps out of the car and pursues the suspect. There then follows a foot chase through a crowded shopping area because Foster, despite being an attorney, runs instead of saying, My, Sergeant Hooker, whatever can I do for you? Because at this point, it's a busy shopping centre that Foster just happens to be in. Hooker has got nothing on him. If he just stood there and said, I'm just out shopping for the day, Hooker couldn't have done anything about it. But instead, Foster runs. Now, I don't expect realism from Aaron Spelling shows, but I do occasionally expect a smidge of common sense. I mean, we'd, we wouldn't have been given this foot chase, which would have been a shame because it's hysterically funny. The scene ends with Hooker performing a two-story swan dive onto Foster, where he literally throws his arms out like Superman and lands unconvincingly on the suspect, with neither one of them sustaining a bruise or a graze or, or, or whatever. I can only assume all the best stunt teams were busy on the Fall Guy, or the Dukes of Hazard or the A-Team, or whatever, because the stunt work in TJ Hooker is not up to par, quite frankly. Hooker arrests Foster. I don't know what for. Um, but there's been a change to the MO of the rapist, the modus operandi, which I learned from Flash Comics. This time, Foster used a knife, not a gun. So it's a massive coincidence, therefore, that Foster's gun shows up near the location of the last rape, which coincidentally was Leonard Nimoy's character's daughter. You know how that happened, right? 
I don't need to spell any of this shit out for you, do I? Hooker knows Maguire is responsible for this. He knows Maguire broke into Foster's house and stole the gun. Because it's too convenient a happening to to just be to just be happenstance. Uh, and he yells at Maguire that Foster can now be cut loose as a change in the MO can be argued by a competent attorney to be a completely different person. Why would he change his MO on something that's working so successfully? Hooker actually has a point here. Um, and I can fully understand how, how Leonard Nimoy's character, Paul Maguire, got his reputation as a top cop when he's doing bullshit things like this. Hooker refuses to agree with Paul about lying about the gun, because Paul says, well, you know, if you say it was there all along and maybe we missed it, we'll get a conviction. But, you know, Hooker's not about that, despite the fact that a couple of scenes earlier he's quite happy to blatantly disregard protocol. Uh, And Maguire punches Hooker in a terribly directed scene. Nimoy literally has to hold his pose for a number of seconds so the director can zoom in on him really, really slowly. Nimoy seems really uncomfortable throughout this entire episode. I mean, obviously, he's got none of the relaxed demeanour he brought to Spock because it's it's a very emotional character that he's playing. But he's not very convincing as the angry Paul Maguire. When Nimoy played the bad guy in Columbo... He was one of the few times that a bad guy really got under Columbo's skin because he delivered a really great, really seedy performance. I mean, I grant you, this episode of T.J. Hooker is nowhere near the level of quality of, a, of even a bad episode of Columbo. You know, his dialogue that, that, that Nimoy has to deliver here is absolutely terrible. But also, he's not bringing anything to it. He's one note and unappealing throughout the entire show. And Maguire makes this entire thing about him. It's not about his daughter, you know, the one who actually got raped and actually needs the counselling and the help and the assistance and the support. He makes it about him. I can only assume at some point that a scene was missing here. Because Captain Sheridan then takes Maguire's badge and gun. But it doesn't seem to me that they have any evidence that Maguire broke into Foster's house and stole the weapon. Again, the show only really seems to care about following the victim versus um, guilty party diatribe when it suits their needs. There isn't any evidence Nimoy did this. So, whatever. Hooker still manages to get the two rape victims to testify, though, which reinvigorates the case. Maguire isn't about the case, though, and he pulls Foster out of jail by conning the prison guard in a scene that shows that LA cops are apparently really fucking stupid. Once again, Hooker sidelines Romano to take after Maguire himself, just as he did earlier on in the um, in the chase scene through the, the busy shopping centre. I can actually see why Zmed left the show. After the fourth season, Hooker tends to do everything himself, with Romano not getting a slice of the action at all. So, so why should why even have Romano there? Shatner's going to do everything because he's William Shatner. Uh, there's another car chase. It's all rather rote, all rather predictable, all rather staid and boring. You know, this episode was written by a woman, and the rape angle could have been sensitively explored, but. 
Spelling and his producing staff aren't really interested in that. Rape is just another trope for them to hang the, the shitty stories on. And the story actually ends up being about Maguire and how his daughter's rape affects him and not about the attack on the woman or the motivations for the attack on the woman. Foster's a, a two-dimensional bad guy. In fact, he's not even a two-dimensional bad guy. He's a one-dimensional bad guy. There is absolutely nothing to this guy. We're told that he's an attorney, but that never comes into play in the episode. He never defends himself, and he never mentions how many times Hooker just completely disobeys protocol. You'd think that that would play into the story in some way, but no, never does. Uh, there's some lip service paid towards the law versus justice, which was done much better in Dirty Harry. But this is an Aaron Spelling production, so we're not here to ask questions intelligently or do any true explorations of this topic. We're here to be frivolous. And that's where I am with this episode of TJ Hooker. It's far too frivolous a show to tackle a topic this seriously. And I question, why doesn't TJ Hooker work when Starsky and Hutch does? You know, Starsky and Hutch could be just as frivolous, but when they did tackle an important subject, such as gay men in the police department, they did it justice. The writing, the acting, the characterization all handled 100 times better in Starsky and Hutch than here, even though both are Aaron Spelling shows and both have car chases and gunfights and such. I mean, the humour in Starsky and Hutch could be corny, but at least it was funny. The humour here is forced and completely off-kilter with the rest of the show. The ending is especially embarrassing. Hooker gets a teddy bear as a reward for signing up with Romano's bank, but he can't have that because he's a tough-as-nails cop. Even Shatner can't save the cringe factor of Hooker chucking the burr across the squad room with an anguished scream of, Romano! Whereas, you know what would have been funny? If Hooker had got the teddy bear and been like, Oh, that's nice, I like teddy bears. This big, tough, gruff cop liking a teddy bear. That could have been funny. But it Shatner actually has a line. I, I can't have a, a teddy bear. I'm a tough cop. And it's like, oh, God's sake. You know, how how many truly competent people did it take to make this trash? It's baffling. It really is baffling. Because I can assume none of these people involved in the making of the show wanted to make it as bad as it is. I, I assume they wanted to make a good show. Even Shatner's lacklustre, because Hooker has no dimensions to him. Shatner's best TV roles, Captain Kirk and Denny Crane, have shades. <gasps> Hooker is one-dimensional. He's a cop. That's it. That's his character. A character isn't defined by their job. A job is what you do, not who you are. Hooker, therefore, is a really boring character. And as such, this ended up not being fun at all. It's simply bad television. And not fun bad television. TJ Hooker looks like it was a nice payday for Shatner as he entered his 50s. But he didn't look like he could. You know, compare this to Star Trek, where even anti-Shatner advocate James Doohan admitted that Shatner cared about the show, not just his character. Here, Shatner's ego is allowed to run rampant, and there's no one reining him in. But that doesn't lead to a fun Shatner over-the-top, campy performance. Dare I say it, he's actually wooden in this. As disappointing as Shatner is, though, the real eye-opener is Nimoy. 
He's legitimately terrible here. He gives his character no dimensionality. Rather, he plays it all as superficial anger over his daughter's treatment. She handles the situation far better than he does with half the screen time. We're given no indication that he was a loose cannon before, that he played fast and loose with the law as long as justice was served. And that could have been a nice contrast to Hooker's more by-the-book viewpoint. If Nimoy was a loose cannon, and Martin Riggs to Hooker's Roger Murtaugh, this may have worked very well. Because that would have been a decent role reversal. We would expect Nimoy to be as straight as an arrow, and Shatner to be the loose cannon, so flipping the rules could have worked. Sadly, this showed a level of imagination that eluded the writers. You know, TJ Hooker is sadly weak sauce on every level, even with Shatner and Nimoy reunited. It proves that writing and production is every bit as important as the acting. This is still William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy playing opposite each other. But there's none of the camaraderie, the playfulness, the humour, or, or the chemistry that they brought to Kirk and Spark. Star Trek was a show where people seemed to care about what they were making, whereas TJ Hooker is a show, seemingly, that the people making it couldn't give a shit. TJ Hooker's a dreary, by-the-numbers affair, designed to keep your eyeballs warm in between trying to separate you from your money. Surprisingly, this tripe ran for five seasons, you know, without Shatner, I'd wager this wouldn't be remembered at all. With Shatner, it's a curiosity, and not even a great one. Anyway, let's let's plug somebody else's show, and uh, I'll be right back. Good afternoon, Mr. President. Sorry I've been away so long. I won't let you down again. It's finally here, coming to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. General, would you care to step outside? It's Superman 2 Movie Minute. Chris Franklin and Rob Kelly are back to discuss 1980's Superman 2, five minutes at a time. Superman faces his toughest challenge when he squares off against Lex Luthor and three villains from the planet Krypton. Superman 2 Movie Minute, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Man, this is going to be good. Okay. Before we dive into the email portion of the show, uh, I occasionally like to talk about reading because I am of the opinion books need to make a comeback. You know, we're currently seeing uh, a big influx of vinyl lovers showing back up and vinyls making a comeback. I want books to make a comeback. I want second-hand bookshops to be back on every street. You know, I actually want to see that people are reading again because I am genuinely convinced that the, um, the majority of people currently alive in the world the only reading they do is the fucking status update we have legitimately created a nation of morons and imbeciles interested only in the their own narcissism so i want to see a return to books so every now and again i'm going to mention books on the show as and when i read them and i'm reading a lot more books recently because comics are starting to bore me they're just um there's nothing of interest in a lot of them image are producing interesting stuff here. Obviously, I'm talking about Marvel and DC uh, as opposed to the independent stuff. So recently, I've read Tarzan of the Apes by Edgar Rice Burroughs, which was an excellent adventure novel. Wonderful piece of adventure fiction. I had never read Tarzan before. Uh, I picked this up in a second-hand bookshop for three quid purely because I thought, oh, go on, I'll give Tarzan a go. And I read it on the train. I was in London for business. 
I love business. And um, I, I read, started reading it on the tube and on the trade home, and I took it to Glastonbury with me, and I'd read it in, in, in I tore through it. I'd read it in about five or six days. Absolutely brilliant novel. Horribly racist and sexist by today's standards. <laughs> uh, and obviously we know a lot more about apes and ape culture now than we did when this was written in the late 1800s, um, early 1900s. But uh, I, that's not to say, obviously, when I say it's incredibly racist and sexist by today's standards, I don't think Edgar Rice Burroughs was a racist. Um, he actually describes people of colour um, and the tribes of people of colour. He seems to have some kind of measure of respect for them. But his terminology and the words that he used clearly would not be used today. So I don't think Edgar Rice Burroughs was a racist, because I don't know anything about the man. I mean, if you know anything about him and want to point me in the direction of something like that, please feel free. But I felt from reading this book, he didn't come across that he was racist. He was using very much terminology that is out of favour uh, in today's world. Uh, the sexism is just inherent in the time. Women, women had children and cooked. That's all they did, and that's a reflection on that. But the actual adventure story meat of this is absolutely wonderful. And there's even some great moments in it where we clearly get what Tarzan thinks of trophy hunting. He's not a fan, let me put it that way. So uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs' Tarzan of the Apes was a delight to read. Uh, I'm going to try and find volume two, which is just the return of Tarzan. My understanding is as the books go along... They become very formulaic and repetitive, but he wrote God knows how many of them. But I am very interested in checking out his Princess of Mars stuff. Um, I, I think I read one or two of those um, as a kid. But uh, I've not read them in years, and I wouldn't mind going back and revisiting the Princess of Mars books if I can find them for a reasonable price. Uh, the other novel that I'm currently oh, only 22 pages away from finishing is Knight Rider. By Roger Hill and a contractually obligated Len Larson. This is another one I picked up in a second-hand bookshop. And it is, as you may expect, the novelisation for the pilot movie of Glenn A. Larson's TV series Knight Rider, starring David Hasselhoff. Um, it's pretty much exactly what it purports to be. It is the novel of the TV pilot movie. It puts that on page. It, it clocks in at a whopping 168 pages, so it is by no means a demanding read. But what it does do, as decent novels do, it expands the scenes, it expands the characters. We learn a lot more about Michael Long from before he became Michael Knight. We learn about his parents, his time in Vietnam. The interesting thing about reading the novel is clearly the casting agents were looking for people older than Hasselhoff. Because Hasselhoff was not old enough to have been in Vietnam. I believe he was only around 26 or 27 when he was cast in Knight Rider in 1981-82, which means that he would only have been 16 or 17 years of age when Vietnam finished in 72. So he's not old enough to be a Vietnam veteran. And as such, I think that, that element of the character was phased out as the show went along. So whenever they mentioned it, you kind of... He doesn't look old enough. I mean, it's easily explained. You just explain when his face reconstructed. They made him look younger. It's as simple as that. Um, but the character of Michael Knight in the novel is a lot more rougher than he would become under Hasselhoff. But it, again, you know, I read this on the train, poodling around Comic Con and stuff like that, and it was uh, an absolute... Uh, it was a joy to read it. It's just You sail through it. It's not It's not deep or meaningful, but it does the job. So we'll, we'll talk about books some more as and when I read them. I've not decided. Oh, and I've also finished Sarek by A.C. Crispin. 
This goes on to you. Let me just pull it off the shelf so I can be reminded by it. I forgot about this. I just finished this one as well before we went to Comic Con. Um, me and Shag Matthews have been having this thing on Facebook where we've both been talking about the Star Trek novels that we're reading and semi-recommending them to each other. Sarek was another one I picked up for cheap. I think I got this one off eBay for about a quid or something like that. It's set in the immediate aftermath of Star Trek VI and deals with um, how Sarek and Spock dealt with the death of Amanda Grayson. Spock's mum, Sarek's wife, uh, tying into the Klingon plot in Star Trek VI, obviously going by the assumption that, you know, these things don't happen overnight. Klingons and humanity aren't just going to be friends overnight, so other things happen along the way. This was an astonishingly good read. Anne Crispin was an excellent author, wrote a couple of good Star Trek novels. V, her novel of V is really good, um, and she wrote a couple of... Um, of the novels after adapting the original miniseries. So Sarek is highly recommended because it's not something that I think... Let's put that back on the show. It's not something that I think is going to be retconned out of existence by other stuff. And, you know, who cares? If I like a story, it's part of my head canon. So who gives a shit about that? Uh, right, we are going to jump into the email. As I said last time, Nathaniel Wayne has been emailing in quite a bit so we'll pick up with nathaniel's email before going on to somebody else to boldly go where you already went hello and hello nathaniel gave your top 10 ish episodes of next generation a listen it reminded me of how many holes there are in my next generation viewing originally i watched it with my grandfather during summers at my grandparents but that was rerun season and they didn't seem to be earning much of an order I started a front-to-back viewing years ago, but didn't get very far. I quickly realised I'd seen pretty all the top-tier episodes, and I was going to experience a whole lot of, yeah, it's fine, episodes that just didn't seem worth it. Probably why I'm unlikely to ever do a list like this over in the Council of Geeks YouTube channel. I'm not the completionist I once was. Your own list was well presented, though speaking personally, I'll never warm to conspiracy because it did flat out give me nightmares, which is actually a pretty rare thing to happen to me due to entertainment even at a young age. It might well be good and edgy and all that, but I won't ever want to see it again. I don't hold many grudges, but I tend to hold on to the ones I have. As for my own list, getting the episodes wasn't too hard, but trying to get them in any kind of order proved to be one I was up for. So these are in no order whatsoever. All Good Things, I honestly think, is one of the better series finales I've seen, feeling like a proper celebration of the show up to that point, and bookended nicely with the first episode, thanks to Q in my favourite appearance by him. The Measure of a Man. Yeah, some of these will be obvious. As I've gotten older, I see the ham-fisted nature of this episode, but I will never tire of Riker's conflict of having to mount a sound, convincing argument for why his friend and colleague is just a piece of equipment. Yesterday's Enterprise. You said it well in your own summation. Great moments, stellar visuals, and I, for one, am prepared to be kinder to Tasha in this appearance than you were. The best of both worlds, sticking with my long-standing habit of counting two partners as a single story, I'm lumping them together. Though I think the first half is the stronger of the two, it's unnerving, thrilling, and with amazing character drama amidst the action. The Inner Light. I do love a nice introspective piece, and this really touches me even now more than it did when I was younger. I'm a sucker for stories about stories, and that's more or less what this is. A story passed on to one man, so that the people that it tells of are not truly lost. Good stuff. Side note, if you want an astoundingly dark variant on the core setup of Traveller Lives Among the Natives on a Planet, then check out the story The Skyman from the first series of The War Master from Big Finish Audio. Harrowing. Relics. Yeah, you already covered it. Just great to see Scotty doing his thing. Q-Who. An obvious choice, but what a great introduction for what would end up being a great philosophical foe for the Federation. I'm not sure that element always gets the notice it should. 
The Federation brings planets into the fold, hoping to unify them through shared values. The Borg do a very similar thing, but by force, even as the Collective believes it is to the benefit of all. Tapestry, another great appearance by Q, and Stuart gives us a terrific look at how age changes a person's priorities and perspectives. But who you end up being needs to build upon the shoulders of who you used to be. Mess with that, and you get a totally different person. Cause and effect. I love a good déjà vu story, and this is a great one. Plus, bonus cameo from Kelsey Grammer at the end. So what's not to like? Brothers. I get the feeling that not everybody bought into the whole Lord Data thing, but I always liked it, and I think this pulls together extremely well. I can't help but get echoes of Loki Odin in the Marvel films when I see Lore confront the man who created him. And oh my gosh, that theme music. Just glorious. Also, honourable mention to A Matter of Time, which I'm a sucker for because, well, basically because of Matt Frewer. I will never get sick of the guy, and he's one of those actors who's effortlessly great even in bad material, which this episode isn't really, it's just fine. Yeah, I love I love Matt Frewer. He's always Max Headroom, but I do, I do like him in everything I've seen him in. Plus, his appearing on Next Gen just makes the voice cast of the animated show Gargoyles even more of a Next Gen reunion than it already is. Frakes, Sirtis, Dawn, Spiner, Burton, Meany, Mulgrew, even Nichelle Nichols. I think I'm due a rewatch of that show. Great listening, as always, geekily yours, Nathaniel Wayne. Well, thank you for emailing in with that list, Nathaniel. Uh, the ones on the that didn't make my list would be bubbling under. I love Tapestry. I love Cars and Effect. Uh, like you, I love Brothers. I think Brothers is a great episode. I really do enjoy it. The Inner Light's a good one as well. Yeah, no, no problems with anything that you picked there. They're all absolutely fantastic. Our next email is from Alistair Jakes. Yay, you covered Doctor Who. I think I've done a lot of Doctor Who recently, to be fair. Hi, Andrew. I have a grave and shameful confession to make. I did not make it through Jodie Whittaker's first series as the Doctor. I gave up around halfway through the series with the Surangana conundrum. It wasn't a bad episode, but I'd heard the next one, The Demons of the Punjab, was going to be another historical morality play like Rosa, and I chickened out. Rosa was and is a story that genuinely makes me upset, precisely because it's so well-written and acted. I have had family round, hence my delay in response, and have now watched the rest of Jodie Whittaker's first series, including the New Year's Dalek special, and I am conflicted. First off, I want to say that I listened to your review, and you are right, Jodie Whittaker is amazing, her Doctor is amazing, and that first episode does so much right. The reason I'm conflicted is that the series is somehow the worst of both worlds. I'm a progressive, and I hated Capaldi's Doctor to begin with, because I wanted a female Doctor. But I do groan sometimes when stories decide to moralise forcefully like a stern school teacher. Chibnall's Doctor Who manages to moralise and offend at the same time. By the New Year's story, the cold woman and gays for dramatic effect had reached such a nadir that a gay man is introduced with an unnecessarily sexual comment only to be dead a moment later. I'm a sci-fi fan and have watched stuff that is now shockingly dated and vile. There's an episode of Blake 7 that is literally about a battle of the sexes, with Avon lecturing a female villain about how weak women are. But at least that episode isn't trying to be patronising or moralising as it offends the audience. It isn't just the deaths in Chibnall's Doctor Who that are troubling either, it's how the writing gets confused. In Arachnids in the UK, the episode is so poorly written, I end up siding with the Trump allegory arguing in favour of guns, because the Doctor's plan involves letting innocent animals starve and suffocate to death painfully on the grounds that it's natural. 
All the music beats and ancillary characters say the Doctor is in the right, but when a giant spider has killed someone and is quite literally dying a slow, painful death, it's hard to argue against the Trubs allegory's insistence that shooting it was merciful. Yeah, that's one of the ones that I was alluding to when I said that it's all very well and good having a political stance to your stories, but you kind of have to make that political stance make sense. And I'm with you on that one. I know we were supposed to dislike the Trump allegory and why we felt the need to have a Trump allegory in an episode of Doctor Who, especially one as obvious as that, I'll never know. But you end the episode actually siding with him, which I kind of don't think was the point of the show, but, you know, whatever. The episodes where Chibnall's Doctor shines are the ones set in the past where the suffering of minorities and heavy-handed moralising doesn't feel out of place or unwarranted. Mind you, even their episodes about Rosa Parks ends with the Doctor literally stating that to fight racism, allies have to be complicit in the subjugation of black people to allow them to fight back against the system. It's pretty messed up when you think about it. I won't even talk about Kablam! It's that anger-inducingly bad to me. See, I quite liked Kabla. I get, again, that's the one where they're basically saying that Amazon sucks, but no, it doesn't really. But I quite liked the episode. Despite the flaws, there is a lot to love. I enjoyed most episodes. Jodie Whittaker is a delight to watch. She's a bubbly puppy, preaching about the importance of hope and love. When the script doesn't demand she advocates something utterly horrific. The companions, Yaz and Ryan, are great when they get anything to do, which sadly isn't much. Since Graham is the comic relief and not a hero character like the other three, he oddly comes across much better, since his character is served well by these small snippets the runtime allows. Yaz, Ryan and the Doctor each have more complex and therefore nebulous personalities and character traits that work well when they have time to show them off, while Graham just gets to be Graham, even if he's just stood at the back commenting on the ridiculousness of everything. I had intended to also talk about your latest Spider-Man comics part and Star Cops, Joe 90 and your latest episode on the greatest American heroine, but I think I've said enough for this email. I care about Doctor Who, and that's why I managed to write all this a month or more after watching it. I just wish it were at least morally consistent within the individual episodes. Uh, again, I don't have any problem with those complaints. Uh, as with Shane Anderson's email last time, it's, it's not the complaining, it's not if you have a legitimate problem with it. You know, let's let's hash out what the legitimate problems are. My issue does seem to be that an awful lot of people are piling on the wrong things. Same thing that happened with The Last Jedi. Same things that you know is going to happen with The Rise of Skywalker. But, you know, what can you do? Okay, okay. We'll uh, have to knock it on the head there. I've got an elsewhere to be. Uh, if you want to email me in, like Alistair and Nathaniel, about this or any of the other topics covered on the show, feel free to drop me a line at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com and remember everything is going to be okay eventually in the end